and then show you a video of our CEO taking semiconductors out of his oven. Yep. And that's the story about tomorrow is he knows how to do this stuff at home. Like, of course, he's going to innovate if he makes semiconductors literally while he sleeps. Like that is, a I mean, like, yeah, he's got a couple bagels in there and a couple semiconductors. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. I got this really, really random thought, but I got to start with it. Okay, start with a random thought. Yeah. So when was the last time you had a Klondike bar? We're going on a decade. Okay, yeah. So, you know, the chocolate bars, like ice cream or whatever, that's in a Klondike bar. The reason I think about this is because their they're like jingle, right? Their whole motto thing was, what would you do for a Klondike bar? Yeah. And I think the world has answered, not much. <laughs> like nothing? Yeah, like, <laughs> the I marketing team? That really blew up in their face? They're like, we don't even want one, actually? Yeah. Like, let alone pay for it. Like, I wouldn't do anything, let alone pay for this thing. So, random thought, random thought. Before we hop into the real deal here, uh, let's get some listener mail gone on. So people that have shout outs or questions or things that you find of interest, uh, send a note to skippydoogles at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at skippydoogles. We love that. And as a reminder, skippydoogles.com is a one-stop shop. You can check out our Substack. You can check out our premium subscriptions. And uh, please always rate and review. Helps people find us. Love it. So... Can we talk about yeah. not being willing to pay for things? The hustle is back in my repertoire here. We've, we've brought up the hustle before. I mean, I hate to interrupt, but something I'm going to say something that I never thought I'd say. Shout out to Duke University. We're going to talk about three different things from three different Duke University professors. They're bringing the heat, man. Maybe they're, they're still, they had all sorts of free time on their hands after their team got crushed by Carolina in the Final Four. May, I don't know. Okay. But shout out to okay. Duke, all right? I'll, I'll shout out to Duke. I'll, I'll, even with your little burn in there, I'll still take it. I'm excited to talk about that. And Duke All right, is, the hustle. The, yeah, the, the hustle. Underappreciated, hustle. underappreciated journalism. We always love it. And they had a sweet article that you're going to walk us through called Why Free Stuff Makes Us Irrational. And I think both you and I can relate to this because we both like free stuff. Very much so. I have a genuine 100% free wardrobe. No, that cannot be true. You Free told me. me about no the the McKinsey like boat yacht meeting. Oh, that, okay, okay, uh, okay, okay, okay. You know, you went and bought some red uh, stuff or something. Okay, okay. So let me let me be very clear. I'll be very clear about two things. One is I have a sneaker collection that I have purchased. So that that okay. is those yeah. are that that's that. Uh, free free sneakers. That's not really a thing you want to go there because they have like uh, feet fungi. <laughs> You like true. sneakers you find on the streets. Yeah, it's, um, it's true. Don't, don't do But what that. I mean by the rest of it is that they are either meant to be free, like you go to a conference, you get a shirt kind of thing, or have been purchased for me. Like I have not bought things in my wardrobe. I mean, who outside is of purchasing them for you, though? Is it someone in your family? Usually a lot of mother-in-law purchases okay. because yeah, yeah. the mother-in-law will come and see the state of things and realize so, that there's there's a situation I don't, 
I don't feel like I should tell you this on the pod, but that's kind of a that's kind of a bad thing, Dougals. When when mother in law shows up and is like, "Oh, this guy looks homeless, and we need to buy him some clothes." No, it's not because then you get free clothes. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, all right. So here here's this article. It's about how free stuff makes us irrational. One of the the lines in here I think sums it up pretty well, which is. People, people overvalue things that are free and make irrational decisions in many cases when something free is involved. That's what this whole thing is about. I love where it starts because I can relate. And that is getting free samples at Costco. So two examples, they say, in 2015, near seven years ago, at a Southern California Costco, a 78-year-old, okay, first of all, both of these examples are people in their 70s. A 78-year-old was punched in the face after accusing a 24-year-old of hogging too much Nutella waffle samples. <laughs> a 24-year-old is hungry, man. Just, just roll with it. There's and then it samples says, to go around. It says an arrest was made. It didn't say who was arrested, and I'm curious, but an arrest was made. 2018, so let's get a little more recent, four years ago, at a South Carolina Costco, Two septuagenarians, so we're back in the 70s, on a cheeseburger sample binge. <laughs> like, I don't even know what that is exactly, but on a cheeseburger sample binge, got into a spat over line etiquette that ended <laughs> that ended in a hat flying slap to the face. <laughs> so I love this article. I love the hustle. Yes, this it, is it, it's so, it's great. so great. It's so great. And and so that's that's like a you know playful, well. Not not so playful for the people getting hit in the face, but a, a playful example of just free things and they they make people's mind minds go wild. Getting into Duke University thing, there was a study that was done by Dan Ariely, right, who does lots of great psychological behavioral studies. One, I think this one was really, really interesting, and it was looking at people's affinity toward free chocolate. So what they did was they offered someone a free Hershey's kiss. Right. You know, like the little silver wrapping yeah. Hershey's kiss, or you could get a nice savory lint, like L-I-N-D-T, savory lint chocolate, which is fancy. Right. I'm talking Swiss fancy, fancy chocolate. Swiss, yeah. yeah. You could get that for 14, oh, sorry, for 13 cents. So they said either the free Hershey's kiss or this delicious lint chocolate that's worth like, well, more than this out in the free market for 13 cents. In this, 31% of people chose the Hershey's kiss 13% of people chose to buy the 13% and then there were people that were like I don't like chocolate I don't know why you're talking to me offer me free chocolates is real creepy but that so it was what a little over two to one right but then what they did was they increased each of those prices by one cent so if you're thinking about this from a elasticity perspective right the propensity for someone to buy based on the price you would think one cent shouldn't change a lot they said we're going to make instead of free we're going to make the Hershey's Kiss one cent and make the, the Lint 14 cents. In this case, the 31% of people that, that decided they wanted the free before, it's now 8%. And 30% now bought the Lint. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I, I want to also mention, and I think you might have done it, but in the first scenario, 56% choose not to have a chocolate. And in the second scenario, 62% yeah. choose not to have a chocolate. But um, pricing strategies is one of the most fascinating things around. And people, the thing here is that you're saying if uh, if this thing is free, 
and 31% of people are going to choose it. And if you make it one cent, that changes to 8%. It's just a, it goes to, it's a binary, right? There's, there's, yeah. This is not an elasticity situation. It's just purely like the point of this was saying that something just being free, the word free will change someone's entire psychology and like emotion toward it, which I, I think is right. I don't know if if he did this this third scenario, but I think a third scenario where the Hershey's Kiss is like a nickel, you probably actually sell more than when it's a penny. But that'd be good follow up research. Yeah, that'd be we'll we'll send a note out to the Ariely family and see we'll what do. they decided yeah. to do here. Yeah, no, I think you're right because then it starts to get some value to it. So why is this important uh, for the conversations we end up having? Uh, we we talk a lot about psychology here, right? We talk a lot about emotion. Those both have a lot to do with investing. And for me, when I think about free, there's been a lot in recent years that has been quote unquote free. You had the onslaught of free transactions when you're buying stocks. So instead of having to pay $495, $985 right, to buy stock, now that is free. And what that ends up doing, you also have free money, right? Which we can, we can touch on too, quote unquote, free money with interest rates at approximately 0%. Yeah. And what happens when things are free is people go, oh, it's free. So therefore I'm getting some value. There's some inherent value, some inherent sale. And what gets ignored is the downside that comes along with that being free. Because what is the, as an economist here, Skippy, what is the old economics saying? I mean, what are you going here? Law of diminishing marginal returns. Okay, never mind. Where I was saying this was like I threw like the lobs of all lobby McLobber sentence your way, and nothing. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Oh come on, that has nothing to do with economics. That's just a saying. No, that. <laughs> uh, whatever, whatever. Yeah. So there's no such thing as a free lunch. What that saying means is that someone's paying for it somewhere. Right. So you mm -hmm. might say that someone's giving this to me, but it's kind of like with with a uh, Facebook slash, I guess, maybe all of meta properties with Facebook. They're saying if uh, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Right. Yeah. It's the same kind of idea. And so people get buck wild when they see something for free, but there's some kind of downside. And you start to see that downside when interest rates go up, when you realize that uh, a Robin Hood is, is actually making money on the back end by charging you a fraction of a, or not charging you. Um, by causing you to pay a fraction of a penny more than maybe you thought you would, whatever it might be, right? Yeah. But there's there's something going on that that makes that that payment happen. I'll give this one other example from here, and then we we can keep talking about the concept. So the other one of the other examples that I really love from this is they talked about the power of free shipping. Now, who don't like themselves some free shipping? Nobody. The same people, same number of people that like Klondike bars. Nobody. Yeah. This was something where they said they were figuring out what uh, causes the likelihood of someone to buy more the most, I'd even say, when shopping online and looked at free shipping, free returns, easier online returns, same day shipping, next day shipping, easier in-store returns, faster checkout, two hour or less shipping, and 3D product visualization, and free shipping won by a landslide from that whole list as to what caused the most people to buy. Free shipping, 77% of folks said that that would make them more likely to buy if they got free shipping. What was fascinating here, going back to the like nothing's free, is the consumers that were studied here preferred to save $6.99 and get free shipping versus saving $10 on the purchase price, but still paying for shipping. You see what Jeff Bezos did? You see what he did? 
That's brilliant. It's really, it's, really it, smart. It's absolutely. And part of this is the notion of what happens with free. And a part of this, the study was showing, is that there's an unfairness like emotion that goes towards shipping where people say, I'm buying this tangible good. Like I understand the value that sits in this good, but if you charge me for shipping, I feel like you're ripping me off. Yeah. Like that's a thing that doesn't actually provide as much value as the 699 that you're providing. That's what the study said. You know, I don't know where, where people like fall on the spectrum there, but I can kind of get that. Regardless, you end up paying more because you went for the free thing. And it's, it's ages old as time. Is that the is that the way that the saying goes? I don't think so. <laughs> We're going with it. Age is old as time. <laughs> tail? Tail is old there as time. There you go. Yes, that that that, that is it. <laughs> tail is old as time. What do you think? Well, you said no, you're missing the, the my favorite chart from this article, which is um this is the average angle percentage increase in sales after engaging in a free sample mm, demonstration. Yes. You're 600% more likely to buy frozen pizza if you eat some frozen pizza at the Costco little sample thing. That's insane. What, yes. what is the return on investment there? They fry up two pizzas and they sell like 45 of them. It's amazing. Once you get a little bit of that pizza. Oh, know, yeah. It, and it's also something that the uh, the emotional impact got to wear off by the time you get home. Because like you get home, you realize you have to like preheat the oven. You have to put the thing in. Like it's not a. It's, it's not an instant, right? That pizza then sits in your freezer for who knows how long after that. But no, I whoo. think you're on to something. I'm going to do door to door delivery of pizzas, but I'm just going to give a free sample first. Yep. Like, the, can you imagine if the Swans man like hooked you up with a, a hot slice of pizza and then said, now, do you want me to put 15 in your freezer right now? You'd be like, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, I yeah. do. I do I do think that these examples are really powerful and the overarching piece that you know we chatted about a minute or so ago is critical for folks in the investing world that when something is free you got to think about why it is free and what the true cost ends up being when it comes to like the transactional cost that we talked about what I mentioned was the the fraction of a penny that Robinhood makes for the average investor that probably actually that isn't a huge cost for them. But what is, is your higher likelihood to trade. And that is a cost yeah, for you. That's a huge right? cost in the long term. Like an incentive, it incentivizes you to then potentially trade more because it's free. It's free. It's easy. I'm going to do more of it. And there's a negative correlation between the amount that you, the average investor trades and the amount that they end up profiting on the other side. Yeah, so the um, the last thing this article mentions, and we won't do a deep dive here, is only 20% of Americans say they're willing to pay for news, or only 20% say they will pay for news, and 40% of Americans say they will never pay for news. Uh, my thinking has evolved here, and so I'll just put my cards on the table. I've gone to a point where I almost think you have to, that's the wrong way to say it. I see value in paying for news that I didn't see a decade ago, because I feel like you become less of the product and you actually get a clearer picture of what's happening when you're willing to pay. I mean, I think both you and I pay for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and other things. And I hope we're more informed because of it. Uh, what becomes uh, problematic there is the pendulum swing that occurs between bundling and unbundling of all yep. this stuff where you end up with $5 here, $10 there, $15 there. 
And you're like, well, like that's so many different subscriptions. And then a great bundler comes along, right? Comcast, right? For, for TV channels. And then like, wait, why am I paying Comcast $95 a month? Then someone unbundles it and you go, no, all I want to do is get Bravo. No, oops, bad example. All I want to do is get Wrestle Channel. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, and so you buy that one channel. You're like, now I want this channel. Now you're paying $4 a month for five different channels. You know, like that's the, it's the bundling, unbundling. Moving on, man. I wasn't even talking about <laughs> cable TV. Come on. I mean, um, I heard I heard about that from a friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would never. Let's continue on the Duke train, if you don't mind. So yeah. Duke did a pretty awesome survey of CFOs. I can give you some stats. The large majority of their respondents were private company CFOs. Typically, we're talking uh, businesses less than 25 a million dollars in revenues, but they had some respondents like almost 20% of the sample with businesses greater than $5 billion in revenue. So it runs the gamut here. First thing that I thought was interesting is I just hadn't seen the breakdown this way. The majority of CFOs in this sample have worked in their job for more than 10 years. And the majority are also over 60. So there's like a CFO turnover with uh, major companies that is going to happen here shortly. Same with uh, a lot of other high management positions. I think the primary education for a CFO is an MBA, which I thought was also interesting. Um, Almost three quarters have either MBA or other postgraduate degree. Um, So that's the basic tenure stuff. Here's what I found interesting and I think ties into your investing. So If you think about how the CFO on the company that you bought equities is thinking about the world, that could change your investment hypothesis. And that's why I wanted to mention this and we'll just see if you think there's any value in it or not. The first thing they did is they looked at how CFOs think about highly levered companies and if that basically causes a company to pass up high value creating projects. So they asked the CFO, hey, if you have a lot of debt, is that going to have negative ramifications for your company? I think that's a pretty simple answer. How about you? It depends on the environment. Yeah. So basically, 40% of respondents said, no, if it's high value, we don't care how much debt we're going to have. We're going to find a way to do it. And 60% said, "Uh, yeah, that's going to that's going to cause negative ramification for the company. Obviously, as a value investor, I am always concerned about debt. And so I fall in the 60% camp. I was surprised to see that 40% of CFOs said, we're fine. Uh, Our uh, corporate debt structure isn't going to change the conversation. Did they, was it as simple as that in the survey? Or did they go into like what the liquidity, like what a company's liquidity ratio might be? where you are in the debt cycle. I think there are a number of factors that would impact the answer. Um, There's a little more nuance than that. I'm simplifying because they have different categories. So like you could say it will not have observed suboptimal decisions or then we will cut corners in operations or we will pass up value creating projects. Like there, there's all these nuance and I tried to put it in the yes or no category, but maybe I'm oversimplifying there. No, it's, it's probably good to, Good to simplify. I was asking because I do think that for me, right, my answer would depend on where someone is in the debt cycle, what their previous liquidity ratio is, and what what history they have, 
with being able to pay off debt. So, because if, if you're a solid cash management company, then it could, I think it could be fiduciarily, I could have just said financially, um, financially like disadvantageous to not take on debt for something like this, to take on an opportunity. I, I, I could certainly see that. For most companies, most companies probably don't end up falling into that camp, but I could, I could see that. Yeah. And as I, as you talk through that, I realize I did a really poor job articulating this. Let me say this in a, a different way. So for a, a company with high debt, 45% of CFOs have indicated that they will pass up value creating projects because of the debt burden. Uh, so that almost okay, sounds sorry. like the opposite of what I said, but I think that's the clearest way to articulate it. So not the majority, but a large percentage say the debt we have on the books plays a role. Okay. Okay. In so creating future values for our shareholders. Okay. I was thinking it was if you have a project that you're going to take on, would you be willing to take on debt? That was what I was thinking of. Yeah. In order to feel yeah, yeah. That is interesting. When was this run? Is it recent? Like this year? Uh, it's, uh, I think it's a year stale. Okay. So 2021, you're still pretty late in the debt cycle. No, and actually I'm wrong about that. This is the 2022 survey and they do it yearly. There's a few questions that are still a year stale. Okay. Yeah. But late in the debt cycle, regardless here. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking exactly. about huh. what, what do you, what's your biggest takeaway in aggregate from that? How are CFOs feeling? About the same as the rest of us. I think they're cautious and slightly concerned about where we're headed, but mostly feel like they're in uh, the range of respondents here is so broad that it's hard to put like a paint a broad brush, but there's, there's one other thing, maybe two other things that I just want to get your take on. The next is the factors that drive payout decisions for dividends. Really interesting. The most common factor for repurchases of shares is whether our stock is a good investment relative to other options. I'm so excited to hear that. I know I shouldn't be. That seems like common sense, but that's not what I necessarily expected to hear. So these are people actually thinking about capital allocation in what I think is the appropriate way. Like, is our stock undervalued and therefore should we be repurchasing? And is our stock overvalued? And if so, should we be issuing more shares to invest that cash in a way where we can actually make a nice return? The second uh, factor when it comes to purchases, the second most common factor is increasing earnings per share, which I also find interesting because that's a way to say, you know, like, oh, revenues are flat, but we're going to buy back shares. And then all of a sudden our earnings per share are going to go up and our stock's going to look more favorable. Um, not a surprise, but it's just, again, you like, this is a look behind the curtain of what the people that manage the finances at the companies you invested are thinking. That makes sense to me. In terms of actually paying dividends, the two most common, I, I call it responses about dividends is that in terms of if they should raise or reduce the dividends paid, CFOs are thinking about avoiding a reduction because that creates a negative story around your stock. So that often hurts your stock price. So one of it's just like this fear. And another is they want to maintain the appearance of smooth profits almost, even though this is a dividend as a proxy for that. So there's a lot of thought about 
I don't want to touch my dividend, especially negatively, because of the story that that tells. I found this survey really, really interesting. And we'll put it out on Twitter if you're interested. Latching on to that story point there for a second, because I do think that that's that's pretty interesting. And the for both what you mentioned around earnings per share and that last point around the dividend, I think are both, in a way, stories. Where my brain first went with share buybacks was not the first example. The first example that you gave, I think, is what I would hope that companies would do. The earnings per share one is a, to be overly aggressive, like a manipulation device to keep up appearances. I mean, you're still earning the same amount. Like what that is. Yeah, but you have less shareholders. So like, I know what you mean when you say manipulation, but hey, if I'm a shareholder and I own 10 shares and they continue to purchase like the railroad companies are doing this right now. They they buy back crazy amounts of shares every year. Their revenues are pretty flat and their earnings per shares grows significantly. Well, if I'm one of the shareholders that doesn't get bought out, that's good for me. Like I make more money every year. It's probably more of a difference between whether this is something that your company does like as a a general course of strategy and action or if it's a a one-off or two-off event whether it ends up being manipulative because if you take someone like a like buffett over at berkshire like they do share buybacks like that is that's like it's a thing that they do and i i would fall more into that camp but if i see someone like a rest in peace but if i see someone like a jack welch doing it my eyebrows is getting real big because I'm most likely they're trying to hit some kind of an accounting figure um, and not doing it as a, a part of their general strategy. That's my, anyway, we don't have to very, go too deep. No, that. no, very, very good point. So some people do this not based on the fundamental value of their stock, but because they own lots of stock options or they have to hit earning per share targets as part of their compensation packet. And then I completely agree with you. They are effectively manipulating that to get paid. And with with that story, even going to the dividends, it made me think about this recent article that um, Morgan Housel had in the collaborative fund at collaborativefund.com. Different kinds of BS is what this was called. This is really, really good. Yeah. And I, I didn't prepare to actually talk about this today, but it reminds me of one of the lines that came from this piece, which I thought was super powerful and cool. Stocks or any investment are valued by taking a number from today and multiplying it by a story about tomorrow. We've discussed the concept of story before, right? And narratives and the importance of it. But I just, I think that like that equation is super interesting because that equation has a whole bunch of words in it, right? Like it's, it's number times words and you can do anything with those words uh, that you want, right? So you could say, like here's our here's our earnings, here's our cash flow, here's our revenue from today, and here are the optics that I'm painting to you by not decreasing our dividend, which leads to some whatever you want to interpret about tomorrow that may or may not be discounted actual like discounted cash flows or anything of that nature. It might just yep. be what you believe, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna take I'm Nvidia, Nvidia, and I'm gonna take <laughs> I'm gonna take our revenue of today. And then show you a video of our CEO taking semiconductors out of his oven. Yep. 
And that's the story about tomorrow is he knows how to do this stuff at home. Like, of course, he's going to innovate if he makes semiconductors literally while he sleeps. Like that is, I mean, like, yeah, he's got a couple bagels in there and a couple semiconductors. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't mix them up, man. Semiconductors don't taste good. Don't sell the wrong thing. Both are in shortage. What one of the things I loved about this article is um, he talks a little about jealousy, or yeah, I mean, I guess I'd call it jealousy, and says a really good learning there if you're jealous or envious of another person is to to not take just the ten percent of what they do best and be jealous of that. Think about the whole person and the sacrifices they make. And I think the easiest example here is you might like see the CFO or the super successful friend and be like, Oh, I wish I had his job without being like, well, he works 90 hour weeks and uh, travels like crazy and all these other things. So that goes to a Kanye quote, which we were spitting some Kanye lyrics uh, the other week. Right? So Kanye says, this is, I love this because it, it's such good self-awareness on his behalf. If you want the crazy ideas and these crazy stages, this crazy music and this crazy way of thinking, there's a chance it might come from a crazy person. Point being, I think Kanye makes brilliant music, uh, especially early in his career. And I could I could just sit back and be like, oh, man, I wish I was Kanye. But then <laughs> I have to be all of Kanye. Yeah. Um, right. It's a, it's a cake eat it type situation. You yeah. can't. Yeah, you, you can't say I want all of this vision and, you know, all, all the glory side of it. Like you also get the Travis Kalanick that is trying to, to like, you know, take down full systems, whether that system is like your culture, right? Like yeah. you, you, you can't get it all right. Uh, I, I think that's super powerful. I really love that. And I, I do think that it's important. And it's a, you know, as, as you know, we talked about here, I, I am like the startup world is the world that I've kind of lived and worked in uh, for a while. And it always comes with with these different sides, right? People, you come to a startup, like let's say as an employee, you come to a startup and you say, I want autonomy and I want to be able to wear different hats and I want to learn quickly and I want to grow quickly and you know all that stuff. And people are like, yeah, like that's yeah. what I want. It's like, yeah, and you got to know that like you might not get that paycheck next. <laughs> like Exactly. Weeks, right? Like you, you, you have to, it's the whole thing kind of goes together. It's all part of the same equation. Exactly. So Morgan per usual does a really great job of distilling this down. This is one of my favorite articles of his, um, in the recent past, which is saying something cause he's super talented. Uh, so check that out. That's another thing we need to throw on the Twitter. Let's wrap up our, our, uh, Duke congratulatory applause here. Um, there's another paper that came out by Campbell Campbell Harvey, a professor at Duke. This is specifically about crypto. There's one thing that I just want to mention because I alluded to it three weeks back, saying that Bitcoin and QQQ were like moving in the exact same direction. Highly he quiet. actually does strong correlation here. I'm trying to find the graph, but that shows exactly that. Basically, from the start of 2022 on... Uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum have become highly correlated, or I should say much more highly correlated with U.S. stocks than they have previously. And I'm finding those R values for you right now. Basically, historically, pre, even pre-2020, there was almost no correlation between what's happening there. And then um, in some of the 
COVID crash that happened in early 2020, you started to see some correlation. And from late 21 up through 22, you're seeing uh, our coefficient here of uh, like 0.5 uh, when it used to be near zero. For those who don't know, uh, R of one would be basically exactly the same. So just thought that was good research and wanted to shout that out that it's more than just me throwing some graphs down and pontificating on it. There's academic research that is also saying the exact same thing, which I think is kind of scary if you're a crypto guy. It only makes sense to me, to be honest. And the more I've been reading more and more recently about, I'll call it broadly history of money type stuff, right? And the more that I read about that, the less that I'll even say specifically Bitcoin makes sense to me. There he goes. You got to hate on Bitcoin every episode or we wouldn't be having any fun. <laughs> yeah, or else it wouldn't. Well, you told me I wasn't allowed to hate on Kathy Wood anymore. And so... <laughs> I didn't, I didn't say that. <laughs> I read I read a really good piece there, by the way, but I won't even bring it up. Recently. <laughs> so what I would like to dip into the fishbowl, though, if I may, and talk about bonds. There is this Wall Street Journal piece that is discussing the influx of cash recently into government bonds. And whoa, Nelly Belly Jelly, Dan Ariely. Okay, it has nothing to do with this. It just rhymed. So sorry about that. I don't want to confuse anybody. Um, so what this says is lured by high interest rates and spooked by turmoil in stocks, investors poured a net $20 billion into mutual and exchange traded funds that focus on buying ordinary U.S. treasuries over the four-week period ended May 25th. That marked the largest infusion over a four-week span in records going back 29 years. So we're going back in the 1990s. But wait. That is not all, my friend, Mr. Skippy. We have for darn dagnab a year now, I feel yeah. like, been talking about how people need to go and do their research when it comes to Series I bonds. Yep. Series I bonds are, um, they are inflation adjusted bonds. So right now they're paying 9.6%, something like that right now, which is large and in charge. And sales of those bonds, you have to buy them directly from Treasury Direct, right from the Treasury on their website, have totaled a net $14.9 billion since November, $6 billion more than the previous 20 years combined. So in the last seven months, the inflows have been more than the last 20 years combined. The thing, the first thing this made me think about, oh, no, second thing. First thing was like, woo. But second thing that it made me think about was where's all this money going to go when it gets out of those bonds, <laughs> which it will. Uh, yeah, that's actually, I hadn't thought about that. I, I'm just uh, busy. I have an arm sprain over here from patting us on the back. We, we were the first major. <laughs> wait, uh, are we a major podcast? I don't think so. Yeah, we were so. the first podcast I'm aware of to even jump on the bandwagon. And I know we had a lot of listeners take us up on it. I, I bought more this week, Dougal's. At the 9.6% because it's really tough to pass up right now, which is why you have $15 billion flowing into this product since November. I mean, one of the things that concerned me, and tell me if I'm wrong to be concerned, but when I read this, it concerned me. In this article was they discussed this man named Jerry Gray, who's a retiree, 
and he was talking about getting into bonds. The quote that he said was, so he like sold stocks, gets into bonds. Yeah. The quote he had was, rates are going up so fast. I want to ride the wave up. <laughs> I don't think that's as bad as you think it is. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't mean like, I hope he doesn't mean like his investment strategy is um, predicting where rates are headed. Oh, he might. Oh, no. Well, the, the things that came to mind were, one, I hope that someone has explained to Jerry that when rates go up, bond prices go down. I hope someone explained that. Because if, if Jerry, so if Jerry's thinking, I'm going to buy some bonds, hold these bonds to maturity. And so I'm going to get my principal back and get all the, you know, the coupons, interest rate payments, then cool. Rates are going to go up. He's going to keep buying bonds. He's going to hold the maturity. But I read this and it made me think that it felt more short term. Like while the rates are going up, I'm going to buy some bonds and I'm going to sell those bonds after the rates go up. And that, that is not how bonds work. And that was what was concerning to me. Because again, when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. There is a negative correlation between those things. Uh, and yeah, pause. Am I overreading no, into this our is, friend this Jerry? This is actually a great fundamental point that uh, we should just clarify. So if you just buy a ETF or a mutual fund of a long-term US government bond and you sit on it, that you're, if you do something like that, the packager of that, let's say it's Vanguard, is going out and actually buying the bonds for you, but your ETF holds a bunch of those and it's it's effectively actively managed as they uh, secure more bonds. If you do that and bond rates go from 3% to 10%, you're going to be in a world of pain. You are losing a lot of money based on the inverse correlation of the price of those bonds that you own as part of that ETF with the interest rates. I think what's confusing about this specifically, Dougals, and, and where we probably just need to spend 30 seconds, is this I-series bond that we've uh, told people to research on the show and that has $15 billion of inflows is this weird thing made by politicians, which is why it's a deal right now because politicians don't know anything about investing in most cases. <laughs> and that is actually the interest rate tied to those payments has to do with CPI, um, the consumer price index, uh, which is also a flawed statistic. So like what happened for that is six months ago that the rate that that was paying was 7.1%. And then inflation got worse, the CPI got higher, and now it's 9.6%. So when I see his quote, I think he's talking specifically about Series I bonds and saying, I'm going to ride that wave. In, and in that case, he actually makes more interest on his principal because of what happens with CPI. Uh, but in many other examples, holding bonds while rates go up would be a very bad idea. I mean, it says more recently he started buying treasury bills. What, treasury what you bills. actually... Look at you actually reading the details. Let's call Jerry. Um, hey, Jerry, you might want to reconsider this. <laughs> yeah, just, I just want to FYI you. Is that a verb? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just want to, is that like mansplain? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh no. 
I'm gonna um, start using that in the workplace. I just want to FYI you on this. Like, I think we need to get a uh, we need to get Jerry on here, and then who was our other friend? Lane Steel Chested or something? Yeah. Like what was Steelman? Lonnie yeah. Steelman <laughs> or something? Yeah, we got to get both oh. of them here. Anyway, um, I think that the uh, the influx of cash into bonds is like is fascinating. Um, obviously, people are looking for something that is that they feel is safer, uh, more secure. Uh, less volatility because the stock market right now is incredibly volatile. And I just hope that people understand how the mechanics of these investments work. Because if, if they're looking for a safe place to park for a while, they're buying individual bonds, like, cool. If you're looking to ride a short-term wave, which maybe you're not, Jerry, but if you are, then just make sure you know what you're buying and what the impact of rising rates is going to be in the near term. So you don't get yourself into trouble. You know who probably owns some bonds? The hill figures, probably. probably. <laughs> Tommy, Tommy, and his wife. I was trying to find his wife's name. So, Tommy Hilfiger and his wife bought a mansion in Aspen, Colorado, for thirty-one million dollars. The market for ultra luxury homes in Aspen, Colorado, is so hot right now that they then turned around and sold that property for fifty million dollars three months later that's out of this world even the logistics of it i don't understand how like there's there there are two things that that send light bulbs like or whatever fire alarms going off in my head one thing is the liquidity that has to exist for you to be able to onload a 30 million dollar house and offload a 50 million dollar house like that alone is wild the market existing as well for me. And second is the price increase <laughs> in such a short period of time. Both of those things are absolutely wild to me. Did they move in? So, I pro- I mean, probably not. Like, so one, to spend $31 million on a home, let's just say I'd hope you were excited about the purchase. Like, I'd hope you got over there, maybe spent a week or two, maybe shipped out your your couches or something. But probably not. So I have a graph in front of me that I'm pretty sure, even though it doesn't go back to the like the early 1900s, we can just trust is okay. It's from 2012 on. It is the total number of homes sold for more than $50 million. The previous peak was about 22 homes in 2014. And in 2021... There were nearly 50 homes sold for more than $50 million. All time. Wow. Like, anyway, and that appears to be continuing into early 2022. But I think, I don't know, Dougals, if you buy a $50 million home, do you think you need financing? Is that a thing? Is there financing? Do interest rates matter? I think you you take financing. (laughs) You may not need it. Because money's so cheap. Used to be. Used to be. Yeah, you used to be. Used to be. You're right. Oh, I don't. I, I, this is a market I don't understand. Let me just let me go there. Going back to the liquidity point that you were mentioning. So that's many more homes than it was a few years ago. Yeah. Right. They're above that price point. That's still not that many to buy. Did did the Hill figures know that this was a possibility before? Like, was this an arbitrage opportunity? Because that's so fast. Like, that is such a fast turnaround. It's as if they saw 
maybe what the okay i'm gonna give a i'm this is a whole narrative i'm making up here so you just you got to stick with it for a second making up a whole narrative what if they saw that there was like i'll call it foreign money some other somebody of money that was definitively going to be coming into assets in aspen including here and they knew and they knew that this money was going to have to spend over 50 million dollars and so they swooped in and uh, they bought this no my, listen i don't want to rain on your parade mr hillfigure is thinking about how to arrange red white and blue on a polo shirt and that's about <laughs> it he's he's not thinking about no no what's happening in aspen right now i'll put this article on the twitter too this is one of my favorite reads from the week and we had a bunch of them is uh there's so much demand that these people are going around they're basically cold calling like anything that's five thousand square feet with a view they're going up and knocking on the door and saying hey do you want to sell this for 40 million bucks there's a two other things broken down one home that sold for 73 million uh which i believe is the most expensive home to ever sell in aspen and probably colorado to be honest i mean these homes are beautiful but i love how you were like well 50 homes selling for more than 50 million like is it that much i don't think any homes worth 50 million but maybe i'm just an old curmudgeon like <laughs> fascinating it's, no they, it's, they, it's a lot they just of, bought the home they just bought the home because they wanted to be in aspen and then someone knocked on their door and said what if we give you 20 million bucks for doing nothing they were like oh i guess <laughs> yeah I, I, I suppose let me check with my never mind let's just do it yeah exactly that is a uh, I, I think I, like, I can't I just I can't even I, I, I can't even imagine like yeah, especially I mean, who I, knows they, they could have even been debating like wait are we getting in at the height of this like maybe and then three <laughs> months later are you are you sure doesn't 30 million seem like a lot yeah yeah I think we're probably it's a bubble but whatever it, it's let's say we overpay by 10 million it's who cares um and then they they flip it for 20 million think about the tax burden though do you think they're doing a, a 1031 uh, we need no, to stop no we need to... no we're going we're going too far we're going too far <laughs> lively conversation today hope you oh. enjoyed the banter guys as we mentioned earlier feel free to shoot some listener mail at skippy doogles or skippy doogles at gmail.com twitter is at skippy doogles all other things are skippy doogles.com uh thanks for listening guys hope you enjoyed